Last time we spoke about the Battle of Attu. The Allied commanders responsible for the frigid Northern Pacific Theater finally unleashed a major campaign to kick the Japanese off American-controlled soil. However, the Battle of Attu was to be by no means a cakewalk. Far from it. The men of the 7th and 35th Divisions were about to receive a baptism under ice. As they stormed multiple beaches on Attu, all was eerily quiet. There was no enemy to be seen. However, upon marching a bit up the rugged hills and ridges, they found extremely well-concealed and well-defended positions of the enemy. The Japanese rained pure hell upon the Americans, causing a bloodbath. Despite the incredible numerical superiority, the Americans struggled to claim each hill, slope, and ridge against a tenacious enemy. Today, we are going to finish that story and jump back over into China for another bloody conflict. This episode is the West Hubei Offensive and the Tangxiao Massacre. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I've just released an episode on the Hongguotuan Incident of 1928. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And over there, this month's exclusive podcast is part two of my series about General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden Incident and author of The Final War Theory. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. We left off at Attu with Colonel Zimmerman taking command after Colonel Earl was killed by a Japanese sniper. The southern force was pinned down at Massacre Valley, just in front of Jarmin Pass. Colonel Cullen's northern force and Willoughby's scouts were making gradual progress over in the Holtz Bay area, preparing to launch an all-out offensive in 35 hours. The weather was terrible for the Allies. The misty fog was concealing the Japanese positions upon the peaks, while the Japanese could fully see the Allies down below. To make matters worse, casualties were mounting as a result of the brutality of Mother Nature. The clothing issued in San Francisco was not nearly warm enough for fighting in Attu trenches. More than 100 Americans suffered death, injury, crippling frostbite, and trench foot by May 14th alone and the casualties were continuing to pile. The Allied artillery was stuck in mud along the beaches. Supplies on the beaches sprawled in great clogged heaps, which the men were forced to carry on their backs, causing them to sink further into snow and mud. The transport ship Parida, which was carrying vital supplies, had beached herself after hitting a pinnacle rock. Landing crafts were running double time, trying to carry the supplies to the beaches and wounded men away from them through crashing frigid waves. The Air Force was grounded because of the terrible weather as well, and already four wildcats had been smashed into mountainsides because of gusts of wind. 
Continuous radio pleas for supply drops were heard with men demanding sleeping bags and food. General Brown decided to prod the enemy defenses with another assault on May the 14th, tossing Zimmerman's 3rd Battalion against Jarmaine Pass, this time with some support from the U.S.'s Nassau. Yet, as usual, the weather was brutal, and three Wildcats would get caught up in a Willowa, in the early morning crashing them. The troops' assault, likewise, was just as disastrous. Four company commanders were put out of action, two killed and two wounded. The casualties were high, and the battalion was forced to run back to their trenches. Zimmerman was forced to relieve the battered unit by bringing up the 2nd Battalion of the 32nd Regiment. Further south, the newly arrived 1st Battalion of the 32nd Regiment was clamoring onto a very overcrowded beach. The transports were having a difficult time unloading, unlike their counterparts at Beach Red, who were managing to move the flow of supplies more smoothly to the front. General Brown was anxious to make progress, and he reluctantly requested that General Buckner's 4th Regiment be brought over from Adak. His message included this. Evidence of greater enemy strength than anticipated. Indication of lack of sufficient force to accomplish mission. Recent captured enemy documents show enemy strength considerably above than anticipated. But Admirals Rockwell and Kincaid had refused the request because the southern beach was congested. Kincaid sent this message back. Every effort must be made to expedite clearing of beach and unloading of transports in order that they may be withdrawn as soon as possible. Reinforcement by 4th Regiment not possible until completion of above. Well, that response certainly did not sit well with Brown and the Army lads. Brown reacted bitterly, telling his staff officer he didn't believe the Navy cared at all about the Army's needs. As Major General Archibald Arnold put it, Attu was the first Army-Navy operation for almost all of us. We had little understanding of successful cooperation. The Navy had no concept of the effect of terrain and weather on the combat efficiency of the troops on Attu. It had no conception of how ground troops fought, and therefore Admiral Kincaid could not evaluate the prospects for the outcome. To make matters worse, Rockwell's three old battleships had exhausted their bombardment ammunition. They needed to head back to Adak for more, leaving Brown and his men without the critical bombardment support. Admiral Kincaid was really unhappy with the lack of progress on the part of the army and demanded Brown write a report of the situation. Unfortunately, the PBY Catalina carrying that report accidentally dropped it into Massacre Bay. Admirals Kincaid and Rockwell were not at all too happy with what appeared to be utter silence from Brown. Meanwhile, Cullen's northern force was firing from their trenches and withstanding Japanese motor and artillery barrages. Both sides were causing significant casualties upon the other. One of the Japanese doctors at the scene, Dr. Paul Tetsuguchi, wrote this in his diary. Continuous flow of wounded in the field hospital. Took refuge in the trenches during daytime and took care of the patients during the bombardment. Enemy strength must be a division. Our desperate defense is holding up well. Over in the mountains, Willoughby's scouts had been fighting nonstop from May the 14th to the 16th. Constant firefights and shootouts with entrenched Japanese was taking a toll on them. The Japanese continuously were heard screaming, Damn American dogs, we massacre you. After a series of grim firefights in the intense cold, the men went to their foxholes hungry 
as they had no more rations. By the evenings, nearly half of his men were casualties. Willoughby would later describe his constant struggle to save his men, as many as possible from frostbite and gangrene. The ones who suffered were the ones who didn't keep moving. I tried to keep everyone on the move, but I didn't catch some of them. They stayed in their holes with wet feet. They didn't rub their feet or change socks when they needed to. Willoughby had no choice but to push the men forward. They had no food, and their boats had been casualties of friendly fire. Their only salvation was to link up with the northern force, but to do so, they would have to break through the enemy lines. On the 16th, Colonel Yamazaki decided to withdraw his forces to Moore Ridge, on the far side of Holtz Valley. It would be a miracle to Willoughby's men. Yamazaki's men had left behind large stores of ammunition and food. The rationale for the withdrawal was to thwart getting caught between the northern force and the scout battalion. The Japanese had actually believed the scout battalion to be a much larger force than they actually were, because of the intensity of their fighting. Willoughby's battered men finally linked up with Cullen's force at Holtz Bay. Only 11 of Willoughby's scouts were dead, but of his 420 men, now only 165 were combat effective. They had been crushed by wounds, frostbite, gangrene, and other ailments. 80 scouts were left to hold key positions in the mountains as the other 320 scouts would join the northern fort's plight against the Jarmin Pass. Something had to be done to break the stalemate at Jarmin Pass, which was causing unbelievable losses upon the Allies. Cullen ordered his battalions to march east during the night, hoping to push the Japanese off Moore Ridge, edging them towards Chikagoff Valley, which would effectively cut off Jarmin's Pass defenders. Further south, Zimran led another front assault against Jarmin's Pass, but like the other times, it failed. That noon, Rockwell decided to pull his warships out of Atu's waters within the next 24 hours as they had become sitting ducks. During this period, Brown was forced to physically come aboard Rockwell's flagship to meet with the Admiral as communications had all but broken down. Brown had come to argue about transporting the 4th Regiment, while Rockwell wanted to know what the hell was even going on. Brown was able to convince Rockwell to send word to Kincaid that they both wanted the 4th Regiment to come over to Atu. Additionally, they requested some road equipment to help the engineers build some roads to clear up some of the supply nightmares on the beaches. Kincaid's response to Brown was made in haste and with some poor choice of words. What did you expect to build there with such tremendous supplies? A stadium or a city? You asked for supplies that you couldn't have used over a period of months. Kincaid basically read Brown's requests and came to the conclusion the general was expecting a battle to last 60 days or more, while the original battle plan was expecting three days. At this point, when they were messaging another, it had been five days of battle. Thus, Kincaid deduced Brown had shifted to a defensive stance rather than an offensive one. He was really pissed off by this, and he immediately met with Generals Buckner and DeWitt. Buckner and DeWitt were not fans of Brown, and they would fan the flames of blame upon him. As a result of terrible bad communications and some service rivalry, General Brown was relieved of his command. General Landrum was to relieve him and take command of the 7th Division. On May the 16th, both Rockwell and Brown were relayed the message to their shock. Landrum was on his way, and in the meantime, Brown retained command. 
Thus, Brown ordered Zimmerman to launch an attack again against the German pass, and once again, it failed. They'd incurred so many losses from that attack, the 2nd Battalion of the 32nd Regiment had to be relieved by the 3rd Battalion of the 17th Regiment. Oh, and do remember, the 2nd Battalion had been sent there to relieve the previous one. To the north, Cullen's Battalion had crossed the Holtz Valley under the cover of night, applying some pressure to the defenders on Moor Ridge. The Allies were pinned to the valley floor while they were trying to rain hell upon Moor Ridge. Again, we have a diary entry from Dr. Paul Tetsuguchi displaying the lengths the Japanese would go to to hold their positions. If Moor Ridge is taken by the enemy, the fate of the East Arm is decided. So orders were given to destroy all the wounded soldiers by giving them shots in the arm and so that they could die painlessly. At the last minute, there was an order from the headquarters sector unit to proceed to Chikagov Harbor by the way of Umanose. Cullen then sent some platoons out along the beach to his left to climb the seaside ends of the ridges. The men climbed from hump to hump and were forced to charge right into the enemy defenders, involving hand-to-hand fighting, but they gradually earned a foothold upon the ridge by nightfall. Cullen had thus managed to capture Holtz Valley, finally a significant piece of good news. He sent word by radio to Brown. It would be the only bit of good news Brown would hear as he responded, Well done, to Cullen. A few minutes later, Brown heard General Landrum had just arrived at the harbor. Brown and Landrum met awkwardly. Brown gave a full report to Landrum, who expressed astonishment. Landrum then made it clear he found no fault with Brown's command and ordered his plans to continue exactly how they were. He judged Kincaid's condemnation of Brown without even meeting with him in person to be a grave error. Brown took one last look at Atu before he made his departure to the States. Without Brown's knowledge, General DeWitt went on the record writing up an efficiency report of him, adding passages like this. Personality and temperament not conducive to command joint operations. Impulsive. These kind of sly remarks would block Brown's promotional chances later on in his career. Back at Moore's Ridge, the Japanese defenders were down to a single meal a day, usually a single ball of cold rice. Many of them broke under the strain of cold and hunger. The psychological effect of waiting for one's death was too much for many. Many of the men would simply go off on their lonesome to attack the American positions in order to be shot and put out of their misery. Again, Dr. Paul Tatsuguchi wrote in his diary of the defender's plight. At night, about 11.30 o'clock, under the cover of darkness, I left the cave. Walked over muddy roads and steep hills of no man's land. No matter how far or how much we went, we did not get over the pass. Was rather irritated in the fog by the thoughts of getting lost. Sat down about 30 to 40 steps. Would sleep, dream, and wake up. Same thing over again. We had a few wounded and had to carry them on stretchers. They got frostbitten feet. Did not move after the effort. Colonel Yamazaki decided to abandon Moore Ridge and the Holtz Bay area, withdrawing into the Prendergast and Fishhook Ridge during the night of May the 16th. This left the Jarmé Pass defenders in an impossible position. 
So the 303rd Independent Battalion was likewise ordered to pull back and to take up a position at the Clavesi Pass. The Americans failed to realize this because of the thick fog. However, with the lull in firing, they gradually came to realize the brutal battle for Massacre Valley, which had caused 1,100 casualties up to this point, had ended. On May the 17th, Cullen launched a night attack to seize the rest of Moor Ridge. And then the men anxiously advanced for hours, expecting carnage at any moment, only to find out the Japanese had withdrawn. On Moor Ridge, they found large stocks of supplies, including artillery guns. While all this was a great relief to the men, a few NASA Wildcats coming in for a bomb-strafing run upon their position was not so great. Many of Cullen's men were wounded by the aerial strike, prompting word to be brought over to Kincaid. Kincaid sent Colonel Erickson to Attu to better coordinate the airstrikes with the ground operations. Meanwhile, Wallaby sent some patrols out to link up with the southern forces at Germain Pass to spread the good news. Prior to receiving that news, the fog had prevented Zimmerman's men from noticing the enemy had withdrawn. Zimmerman had sent some patrols to the pass which found out the news for themselves, and Zimmerman would begin occupying the pass by the end of the day. Zimmerman walked the crest of the pass and he found the corpse of one Captain John Germain, alongside the bodies of his platoon and small clumps of dead Japanese horribly mangled by artillery shells. The pass, then named Massacre Holtz Pass, was renamed after Germain, who died on May the 14th. Now we're going to take a leave of the frigid northern Pacific to talk about some American naval developments and a bloody offensive about to begin in China. On February the 7th of 1943, the submarine USS Wahoo entered Pearl Harbor carrying eight Rising Sun flags on her signal halyards, and a broom lashed to her periscope shears signifying a clean sweep. She had just come back from a long submarine cruise, and one of the most remarkable ones for the war. She was hailed by a crowd of officers, personnel, and even some news reporters. News reporters coming to see a submarine was indeed a rarity, thus adding to the nickname the Silent Service. The American submarines never promoted themselves and received basically no press coverage. But one person in the Pacific Fleet did, and he decided to publicize the submarine war, and much of Wahoo's reports were given to him for public release. The captain of the Wahoo, Commander Dudley Walker Morton, was nicknamed a one-man wolf pack. And the submarine got an article published in Hawaii's Hawaiian advertiser titled, Wahoo running Japs a gunnin'. Wahoo had sunk five ships, totaling 32,000 tons on her third cruise. But what is more significant than the damage done was Morton's tactics. He had turned a new page and many submarine commanders would begin to study him. As Morton's executive officer, Richard O'Kane, would say, Cast aside unproven pre-war concepts and bugaboos. Morton was extremely aggressive and he employed daring tactics like servicing beside enemy ships to induce panic and deck gun vulnerable ships. This often led to convoys scattering, causing logistical nightmares for the Japanese. However, as triumphant as the Wahoo's ventures were, it could not sweep away the lingering frustration and disenchantment for the Pacific submarine force. Submarines had sunk 180 enemy ships, totaling 725,000 tons in 1942 more aggregate tonnage than Japan could build that year, but it was felt the fleet was not reaching its full potential. Too many submarine crews clung to pre-war tactics. There was overwhelming evidence that the Mark 14 torpedo was a complete lemon, 
But the Navy's Bureau of Ordnance unanimously rallied against any critics and refused any suggestion that things needed to be reevaluated. In the later half of 1942, Admiral English had sent over 61 war patrols out of Pearl Harbor and 27 returned empty-handed. Patrols off truck had been far less productive than patrols within Japanese home waters. Glory hunting, i.e. chasing capital ships, was not producing results. The Japanese freighters and oil tankers, much slower and easier targets, were a much better investment. In the Atlantic, Nazi Germany's wolf packs were demonstrating how a relatively small number of U-boats could menace a vital economic and military lifeline. Japan, like Britain, was extremely vulnerable to a war of commerce, and it was evident to all this was not being pursued heavily enough. But the submarine leadership, Admirals English, Fifth, Lockwood, and Withers were allowing their vessels to perform marginally important reconnaissance services or support various other campaigns in ill-conceived roles, i.e. pre-war doctrine kind of stuff. The active duty submarine officers were becoming increasingly resentful to their leadership and extremely annoyed at watching countless torpedoes explode prematurely, not explode at all, or run in circles rather than speed towards their targets. To these criticisms, Admiral English reported, Subpack has never had a premature explosion. The Bureau of Ordnance, instead of investigating, began to blame the sub-crews for failures. According to Clay Blair, a scholar of the Pacific Submarine Campaign, the torpedo scandal of the United States Submarine Force in World War II was one of the worst in the history of any kind of warfare. Ned Beach, a submarine commander who later would become a historian and novelist, remarked about the torpedoes, saying this, They performed so poorly that they had been the subject of deliberate sabotage. They hardly could have been worse. As a lot of historians have pointed out, it might have honestly been better if the torpedoes were 100% failures, because perhaps then an investigation would have come sooner. The torpedo problem was gradually fixed over the period of two years, while the bureaucrats resisted bitterly and the submarine crews risked their lives carrying faulty weapons. The first problem to be solved was the Mark 14's tendency to run 10 feet deeper than set. Charlie Lockwood in Fremantle, Australia, ran a series of tests and demonstrated the problem to the Bureau of Ordnance, and then he got Admiral King involved, who championed his cause. It was easily fixed by changing the depth setting. Next, in August of 1942, while the torpedoes were certainly not going too deep anymore, the explosion rates were not improving. The magnetic influencer exploder was faulty and was causing premature explosions and through a lot of bickering amongst numerous commanders, it was decided to simply deactivate it. This seemed to cure the Mark 14's premature explosions, but still there was more wrong. So many submarine crews reported dud hits, and when the magnetic influencer exploder was deactivated, the duds became much, much more apparent. It seemed the contact pistol was also faulty. To solve this, engineers adopted a ball switch and electric detonator rather than using a firing pin mechanism. So now the depth issue was solved, the premature explosion issue was solved, and the dud issue was solved, but the torpedoes still tended to go in circles or simply ran erratically. This one turned out to be an easy fix. They attached collars to the Mark 14, 
which the Mark 15s had, and this caused them to steer straight. Now, to give an idea of how these minor engineer fixes changed the war, let's go through some figures. By the start of the war, the Japanese had 6,384,000 tons of shipping. During the first year of the war, they lost about 1,147,400 tons of shipping. But they also added 706,000 tons of shipping, for a total net loss of 441,400 tons, which left them with 5,942,600 tons of shipping by the start of 1943. It's important to mention that the Japanese leadership believed that they needed to retain around 3 million tons of shipping in order to meet the industrial and civilian needs of the economy. Although this estimate was probably pretty low, as Japan's industrial capacity was proportional to her ability to import the needed materials. In 1943, Japan would lose 1.5 million tons of shipping. In 1944, this became 2.7 million. The Pacific submarines were strangling the island nation to death. Now, as a result of this increased American submarine attacks upon shipping, alongside Japan's increased demand for shipping to be used to transport men, like the Tokyo Express, for example, for supplies and raw materials for the war effort, well, you can imagine all this required the home front to produce more and more. As a result, the shipping available for secondary theaters like the North Pacific and even that of China were forcing Japan to seek alternative means to secure the resources that they needed. And here is where our story brings us to China. Over in Yichang, there was approximately 20,000 tons of steamer tonnage for inland river navigation, which could alleviate supply issues for the China theater. But Chinese control over the southern banks of the Yangtze River prevented the Japanese from moving the ships forward to places like Wuhan. Going all the way back to 1938, Chiang Kai-shek, in absolute desperation to stop the Japanese advance, had opened the levees that held back the Yellow River at Huayuanquo in Huinan province. This move had cost an estimated 500,000 Chinese lives. The fertile plains of Hinan province were destroyed and its people drowned or starved. The Japanese army gradually moved south, seizing the strategic city of Wuhan on the Yangtze River. The nationalists still held control over the unoccupied Henan provinces, as the Japanese held around 1.5 million soldiers within China at the time, and did not have the resources necessary to push deeper. For most of the Pacific War, the Japanese were content simply controlling the Yangtze River from Wuhan, extending along the rich fertile delta that passed through Nanjing and Shanghai before exiting into the East China Sea. A further 466 miles upstream to the west of Wuhan, behind multiple barricades of mountains lay Chiang Kai-shek's wartime capital of Chongqing. In effect, there began a stalemate between three sides of the conflict, the Japanese, the Nationalists, and the CCP. Mao Zedong had brokered a secret deal with the Japanese not to fight another for just a while. Some units of the NRA had similar packs with the Japanese as well. This resulted in trade between both sides, surprisingly. And it might surprise you to hear this, but this even resulted in some lend-lease materials coming over the hump and being traded down the Yangtze River to the Japanese in Wuhan. Chiang Kai-shek did not have the resources to train and arm even his core divisions, let alone the local NRA forces led by provisional commanders, who were usually warlords, by the way. I am uncertain how many of you actually check out my 
YouTube channel now and then, but I have certainly been covering China's warlord era for a long time now, and I can tell you, it's actually pretty interesting how long these warlords stick around, uh, especially during World War II. And if any of you are interested, I have a almost two hour long documentary on China's warlord era. I do recommend it. It is probably my, some of my best work, I'd say. And it is the first work I've ever done that has managed to get me a sponsor. Yes, that was a sad little attempt at me patting myself on the back. Carrying on. FDR promised Chiang Kai-shek in 1943 to arm and modernize the NRA's core of 90 divisions, out of a theoretical 360. But in practice, the hump could only provide enough materials to modernize about 30 divisions, the X-Force and Y-Force. Joseph Vinegar Stilwell was in charge of training these divisions, which would in turn retake Burma to open up the land routes to Chongqing, along with the Lido-Burma Road. Without resources to equip his armies on the Eastern Front, Chiang Kai-shek knew any head-on engagement with the Japanese would most likely end with defeat and destruction. This all led the Second Sino-Japanese War conflict from 1942 to 1944 to see the majority of fighting limited at a local level which struggles in agrarian regions, village by village, and mostly between the NRA and the CCP. Now back to the offensive at hand, the Japanese sought to occupy an area between Yixiang and Yuanyang to increase their control over the Yangtze River area and crush the Chinese fighting strength in the region. Now, a bit further back in time, there had been an offensive launched between February and March, just north of the Yangtze, this was performed by the 11th Army of General Yokoyama. They managed to occupy the area between Tsingzhou and Yeyuang, thus acting as a preliminary for what would be called the West Hubei Offensive. Within the region was the 6th War Area Army, under the command of General Su Luanzhong. But overall command were in the hands of the leader of the Chinese Expeditionary Force in the Burma Theater, though at this point he was still in Hubei, and that was General Chen Cheng. The Chinese Expeditionary Force had 40,000 men and they were holding defensive positions all over the region. General Yokoyama commenced the operation by ordering the 40th Division to advance upon Xishao and then Huarong. The 40th Division successfully captured the line running east and west of the towns by mid-April. By early May, the 40th Division sent its Koshiba Detachment further west to prepare an assault upon the town of Nan, while the 3rd Division and the 17th Independent Mixed Brigade deployed at Xishao to prepare an assault against the well-defended base at Anxiang. Alongside this, the 34th Division's Haragara Detachment performed a wide-flanking maneuver to hit Nan and Anxiang from the south. This all consisted of the first phase of the operation. If it was successful, then the 3rd Division would continue west to attack Xiqiang and Goang, supported by the 58th Division's Nozuai Detachment and the bulk of the 13th Division. On May the 5th, the West Hubei Offensive officially began with the 3rd Division and the 17th Brigade crossing the Yangtze and smashing the NRA's 26th Army defensive lines. Meanwhile, the 40th Division began to advance south and east, securing the Yuyang area, with the Tota Detachment rapidly attacking NRA defensive lines around Yushanjian. To the east, the Haragawa Detachment crossed Dongdongting Lake and defeated the NRA forces around Hunglinghe, supported by the 44th Air Regiment. The Japanese advances were so powerful and quick, the defenders had no ability to solve them and rapidly began withdrawing south and west. By May the 8th, the 3rd Division had defeated the NRA forces trying to escape towards Hangzhou, 
successfully intercepting their escape route as the 17th Brigade began occupying Anxiang. Further east, Nan was captured by the Koshiba Detachment, while NRA positions south of it were annihilated by the combined assaults performed by the Toda and Hanagawa Detachments. And it is at this point one of the most horrible events unfolded during the Second Sino-Japanese War. Now I am sure most of you listeners, and honestly many people in the Western world, are aware of what is termed the Rape of Nanking. But most of you in the West, I imagine, have never heard of the Changjiao Massacre. The town of Changjiao is around Dongdongjing Lake, surrounded by water on three sides. As such, the civilians were easily trapped within the town when the Japanese troops began to enter. The Japanese forces seized the waterways and land routes coming out of the town quickly before anyone could escape. The Harigawa and Toda Detachment, alongside the 17th Independent Mixed Brigade, encircled Changjiao from all four sides while preparing for a river crossing to Changdi's coastal area. The 73rd NRA Army, alongside tens of thousands of civilians, were besieged as a result. In the early hours of May the 9th, hundreds of Japanese forces landed in the Yonggu embankment in the central part of Changxiao. This was an area considered safe. Thus, thousands of local residents and refugees had gathered there. As the IGA forces landed, they began massacring the civilians indiscriminately, forcing many to kneel down to be tied up in groups to be killed with knives or bayonets. On May the 11th, the IGA forces forced hundreds of civilians to the Yonggu UN ditch port to salvage bullets dropped by NRA forces. Due to the cold weather and deep water in the port, the people were unwilling to cooperate. The IGA officers ordered machine gun crews to open fire upon them, forcing countless into the waters. At this ditch port, more than 1,000 people were stabbed to death by bayonet, gunned down, or even stoned to death. The survivors dug a pit to bury the victims, and it is called today the Thousands People's Pit by locals. In Changjiao is the Anhu River, which is something like a deep motor blocking the east-west traffic. It was the only passage from Nanxian country to Hanshou and Changdu County. On May the 10th, the IJ indiscriminately massacred more than 6,000 NRA POWs of the 73rd Army and local civilians trapped there. In the early morning of the 10th, the Japanese first bombed the area with aircraft. Then ground forces opened fire upon them. It is said the smell of decomposing corpses could be smelt miles away and was called Bloodwater River by locals. In the Valin Dyke, the Japanese performed five sweeps along the embankment, killing more than 3,000 people. In the Yucheng embankment of the factory cellar, this is a place where there was a large factory, thus part of the area is called the factory cellar, the Japanese hacked to death 30 people with knives. Within Chuancheng village, 200 people were killed within three days by IGA forces. The Japanese forced 200 civilians to kneel on the ground before being gunned down by machine guns. Very few escaped the carnage. In many other local places, pockets of civilians were killed in similar fashions. Sometimes the IJ would tie civilians to the back of motorboats and they would drive at full speed to kill them. It is estimated the Japanese raped more than 2,000 women, from the young to the old. No one was spared. 3,000 houses were burnt down alongside 250 ships. The Japanese looted gold, silver, copper, iron, and grain on a large scale. 
The massacre was part of the famous three alls policy. Kill all, burn all, loot all. In just four days, the Changjiao massacre claimed the lives of around 30,000 people. It was conducted under the command of Field Marshal Shonroku Hata, and we have the testimony of one Japanese Kempeite officer named Uno Shintaro, who participated in the event giving a chilling account. I personally severed more than 40 heads. Today, I no longer remember each of them well. It might sound extreme, but I can almost say that if more than two weeks went by without my taking of a head, I didn't feel right. Physically, I needed to be refreshed. A Chinese civilian in Changxiao who survived named Guo Ping gives us this account. Japanese soldiers slammed their feet into the pregnant bellies of women, laughing as they bloody miscarried. Guo Ping was bayoneted alongside his father and brothers. He had this to say about that. The first blade barely pierced my thick coat. They stabbed me again in the back and abdomen, but I survived. After the horror, the first phase of the operation was a success. The 3rd Division then advanced the Sangzi River and assembled around Tuochambu, while the 17th Brigade moved towards Yixian, and the 3rd Division advanced upon Jiejiang. On the 12th, the second phase kicked off, with the 13th Division crossing the Yangtze to attack Jiejiang, while the 3rd Division trapped 50,000 NRA forces of the 87th Army at Gangyan. The NRA were completely unprepared and utterly defeated as they fled towards Sangzi. By the 18th, the Sangzi position collapsed and the defenders proceeded to flee further south, suffering terrible casualties. I think it's important to note, while all of this looked like a large-scale operation to completely annihilate and conquer, historian Barbara Tukman had this to say about the operation. The Japanese withdrew without pursuit from what appeared to be a training and foraging offensive to collect rice and river shipping. And yes, there seems to be a lot of evidence that this was a large-scale attempt at foraging for materials. But also, they annihilated large armies of the NRA, and they performed unspeakable atrocities upon the civilians of China. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if you're still hungry after all that for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I've just now released a episode on the Hungu Twin Incident. And just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And this month's exclusive podcast over there is the second part on my series about General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden Incident, and the author behind the Final War Theory. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The battle for Atu was a bloody affair. But soon the Allies would seize the frigid North Island and end Japan's toehold in the Americas. The Changjiao Massacre is yet again another taste of the absolute horror that Japan unleashed upon the Chinese people. <laughs>